Welcome to Great Minds with Michael Medved, where we cover subjects ranging all the way from science to history to the origins of life to movies and culture and much, much more. In other words, we cover everything, but always with a view to the big, timeless questions that thoughtful people can and must talk about and ask themselves. Uh, with that in mind, I'm particularly delighted to have somebody on the show today who has thought about and written about and taught about just about everything you can think of. Uh, the term polymath means somebody who knows a great deal about everything and has opinions about everything, and that certainly qualifies Professor David Galanter. He's a computer science professor at Yale University, one of the most influential and groundbreaking people in that field uh, of our time. He is also um, the author of books ranging from Americanism to painting uh, to the origins of consciousness to the coordination of computer science and consciousness and the human mind. Uh, his book which is a particular favorite of mine, is called 1939, The Lost World of the Fair. And he's also the author of a book, Judaism, A Way of Being. Professor Galanter is a fearless public intellectual. In fact, uh, Time magazine called him in not 2016 a stubbornly independent thinker. And indeed he is. Uh, David, thanks very, very much for joining us. Uh, thank you. It's an honor. Okay. One of the things that you have said that is profoundly controversial, you've called science an international bully. Why? Well, on the, on the one hand, I have enormous respect for science. Of course, it's the field in which I mainly work and teach. But science... Um, has a way of accepting without the skepticism that it ought to show about everything, accepting people's estimation of it as uh, the top dog in the intellectual world, as the uh, final arbiter of the questions that really count, the questions that really matter. And that goes to science's head, and they start sounding off about topics like uh, philosophy and religion, such as uh, especially the Western religions that, uh, that, that matter to us, the Judeo-Christian tradition. And, and while there are some scientists who say brilliant things on the topic, there are too many who, uh, who too carelessly uh, contradict or smash their way through traditions that they don't understand. And um, while opinions, uninformed opinions, unenlightened opinions would normally just be dismissed, the fact that they come from scientists gives them more credibility than they deserve. Uh, it's a problem, and it's a problem I see among young people, among undergraduates, among people I teach who've gotten uh, uh, unfortunate prejudices from the fact that science has uh, made its prejudices a matter of uh, public knowledge and almost public policy. And there was in the New York Times just this past weekend, they had in the uh, science section, past week, uh, a, um, a piece about the evolution of wings. 
And uh, again, um, insects being the first to develop, and, and I found it fascinating and very unsatisfying. Uh, you, you've written a lot about consciousness. Uh, can you explain how did consciousness evolve? Well, you know, it's an interesting point. Uh, you will find, I think, more acknowledged ignorance on this question than almost any other I can think of. That is, even those who are uh, uh, linchpins of the, of the scientific approach to questions of philosophy, uh, psychology, the mind, uh, will admit that consciousness ultimately is a mystery and no one has a good theory. Uh, there's, there's nothing even for us to grasp onto. Where it came from, how it developed, why it developed. One of the deepest mysteries is what exactly it does for us. Uh, if we didn't have it, uh, if we were automata, merely, merely going through the motions, if your best friend was an automaton, would you know it? Um, how would you know it? So it's uh, a deeply mystifying topic, uh, so mystifying that even those who uh, are, are, are scientific positivists who believe they see the answer to virtually every mystery in the scientific tradition are, are stymied. I, yeah, if you were asked uh, by, and I'm sure you are, you, you teach on, on these subjects, what, how would you define consciousness? What is it that is so unique and distinctive about it? Uh, you might say that consciousness is the, the, the felt quality of experience, the subjective quality of experience, or you might say it's subjectivity per se. Uh, the, beyond the, uh, our ability to gather uh, knowledge, information, data, uh, from the environment that surrounds us and the environment inside us, we also experience the environment. In fact, we experience it in a variety of ways. And that experience isn't strictly necessary insofar as one can build a, a tremendously sophisticated computer with loads of sensors and, and many seemingly intelligent capacities that has no first person, no subjective experience. It's hard to say exactly what its definition is, exactly what it does, what it's for. It's uh, one of the, probably the deepest mystery we know of in the world of science, in the world of nature, in the world of human capacities. I, again, is there, is there any uh, easy basis for understanding why consciousness, this aspect of feeling, and experiencing reality, why it would be an evolutionary advantage? Absolutely not. <laughs> that's, what, um, that's what I thought. None, it makes it more complicated. None, none whatsoever. And that, it, it, in fact, it's, it, it's an easy thought experiment to imagine your, your very best friend as being, in fact, a robot. Uh, you might never know. You know, so, some afternoon he might be moved to flip open his head and say, you know, I've only got circuit boards in here. <laughs> But up to that point, no reason in principle why you couldn't program a robot. We don't know how to do it now, but there's nothing stopping us in principle from showing absolutely human-like behavior, uh, kick him in the shins and he'll say, ouch, and he'll do everything consistent with the sort of behavior that, that, that we would show associated with real pain and real pleasure, happiness, sadness, 
those behaviors could all be mimicked exactly, but there could be no one home. Uh, so we wouldn't know. As of now, uh, each of us could be the one subjective uh, entity in the universe, and we could be dealing with robots all around us. It's that hard to say what consciousness is for, how we would even detect its presence. We know we're conscious, but that each of us knows it about himself, but that's our only hard datum. Okay, in, in terms of consciousness and the inability to explain its evolution in, in uh, traditional Darwinian terms, uh, you, you've talked about a lynch mob mentality that exists in academia. There was something of a lynch mob that went after an atheist philosopher named Thomas Nagel. What was his great sin that, that led to that reaction? Nagel uh, is associated with a variety of sins. Uh, maybe the most fundamental is just his attitude of genuine skepticism. <laughs> Um, skepticism not only with respect to the things philosophers and academics like to be skeptical about, but skepticism with respect to standard academic scholarship and and so forth itself. Um, but in the presence of consciousness, uh, Nagel uh, has written, we don't know, we don't understand, and it's not clear that the scientific tools at our disposal are good enough. It's not clear we ever will until we come up with something we don't have now. And I can't say exactly what it is. We don't know what shape it, it will take. Uh, it's a new form of science or a new form of knowledge. And, and the fact that um, he was willing to say, eager to say, uh, not only that we don't understand, but we lack the tools was a punch in the face to the scientific establishment. I don't mean establishment in a derogatory way, but science, science likes to think that uh, although there are many things it doesn't know and there are many questions it hasn't solved, the tools it has are exactly right. And insofar as new tools are needed, generally in, in the shape of new mathematics, it, the tools will be developed in the course of ordinary scientific history. We've seen uh, in an orderly way since, uh, since the Renaissance, we've seen scientists coming up with exactly the tools they needed. But for Nagel to say, no, we just don't, have it, and we don't know what it will look like. We don't know what it will be. Uh, a tremendous blow to science's ego, or it would have been to the extent that science paid any attention. It's, <laughs> its usual approach is to say this guy clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. He's shooting off his mouth. We have the greatest respect for him when he sticks to uh, to to ethical or political or community uh, or, or fundamental existential matters, but when he gets into talk, into fields that science legitimately considers its own, he ought to get with a program or shut up. Okay, speaking of getting with a program and shutting up, you've never been particularly good at getting with a program or shutting up because you're an outspoken public intellectual. And in, in that regard, you've been very critical about the university system and the levels of indoctrination and intolerance and groupthink that afflict the American university. You've also, how many years have you been teaching at Yale? Since 1983, which is a decade. <laughs> since the earth cooled, in other words. Exactly. Yeah. So you've been teaching at Yale since 83, and you've dealt, obviously, with thousands and thousands of students in that time period. 
uh, today, would would you recommend uh, to parents, um, particularly parents who uh, may have rel- maintain religious households, uh, Christian or Jewish, uh, that they uh, raise their kids to attend a university like Yale? It's not an easy question because what Yale has to offer, which is uh, priceless, uh, in, indescribably valuable, is uh, students, fellow students, is the student body itself. And um, even for uh, observant religious students, they won't find many of their kind here, uh, but the the minion that an Orthodox Jew attends or the church services uh, an observant Christian of any sort finds, is he's probably going to find some intelligent and interesting, not a lot, but some intelligent and interesting fellow students. So merely for the quality, the outstanding, extraordinary quality of the students we get, yeah, there's... There's a lot to be said for Yale. On the other hand, Yale doesn't deliver what it's paid to deliver by way of education, and that's unforgivable. It's not that it delivers nothing. A Yale diploma is worth money. Uh, You can cash it in for uh, the kind Mm -hmm. of uh, uh, financial industry jobs our our graduates uh, are so fond of, Wall Street jobs, um, you know, the sort of Manhattan the Manhattan biggie jobs with huge salaries and uh, glamorous paths to promotion, you can, that that's a Yale specialty and, and the top universities all have particular specialties and all pave the way to, uh, to jobs that students have been told are the ultimate good in this world. They've never been, no other ultimate good has ever been suggested to them. But on the other hand, do our graduates know anything? Have we bothered to teach them anything? Well, in limited fields we have, we give, uh, we provide good education in, in technical fields and science and mathematics and engineering, um, and even in technical aspects of, of the humanities. We have, a, we have a fine music department and a music school. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a pile of nothing. On the other hand, the heart of an education has to be uh, your own civilization, your own society, the, the country you live in, the society you live in, where it came from what it believes and how it turned out to be the way it is, and we fail miserably to these students, the basis of their culture, of their history, of their literature, um, of, the, of, the, of the quality of their culture, um, the reason it is as it is, quality, good and bad, we fail and it's unforgivable because we know that the high schools are failing. We know that the junior high schools are failing. We know that students arrive here knowing no history and virtually no literature where they need desperately to be taught and they want to be taught and we proceed not to teach them. Okay, if you, if if Yale <laughs> did the unthinkable and uh, made you either president of the university or dean of Yale College, which I think I think would be a terrific thing. I, I would love to write that movie, and uh, <laughs> I, it would it would it would be a wonderful movie. And you know, the, Donald Kagan was dean of the college for a couple of years. I do extraordinary, outstanding, brilliant conservative scholar. 
Yeah, and and also an inspiration to uh, to, to wonderful students. man, inspiring yeah, a- man. Absolutely so, and so. But the 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 question would be, how would you devise the curriculum differently? What would you require the students to learn or to focus on that is so painfully missing today? I'd start with a core of knowledge, not a, not a terribly original word, uh, about their own society, about, um, about the United States, about the Western world today, uh, the emergence of the Western world, its history, and then in broader terms, the history of civilization all over the world as we know it. Uh, the literature of the Western world, of the United States, the Anglo-American literary tradition, the broader Western and European literary tradition, and then go on to the rest of the world. But you need to know who you are to begin with. You need to start at home because that's who you are. You don't understand uh, American and, generally speaking, Western ways of doing things, why we are where we are, why the map looks like what it is and why we've got the books in the library we've got, then you're nowhere. Uh, we have failed you, and you have failed to get educated. And so I, I, you have to start with the inner humanities, um, the, the arts, not only literature, but uh, the visual arts and music. Literature plays, in a way, the most fundamental role of all, but it's those, those inner arts and letters, history, arts, and letters, uh, where you need to begin. Uh, you can't go very far without knowing some basic science and mathematics also. Well, the, the other thing, uh, when you talk about the history, one of the things that has just shocked me because I didn't learn it at Yale and uh, didn't learn it until I was doing my own book, The American Miracle, George Bancroft, probably the most influential of all 19th century American historians, did for the centennial his big 10-volume history of the American Republic. And right. he begins it by saying the purpose of the current work is to show the means by which divine providence has shaped America and its institutions. In other words, to talk about America and the history of America without talking about God and fate and providence is one of those things that you argue in your fine book, Americanism, the Fourth Great Western Religion, which we will get to, uh, is is indispensable, uh, is impossible. You need to have some consideration of the spiritual and, uh, in fact, providential uh, context. I'm speaking with uh, the one and only uh, Professor David Galerinter. He is a, a leading, prominent computer scientist. He has written about just about everything important in this world. We're going to continue these important conversations. And please read about his work and his many, many books, uh, all of which are worth reading. Uh, you can do that at uh, mindswithmedved.com. Uh, go to mindswithmedved.com, where I hope you will subscribe for free to receive notifications of further episodes of this podcast. And also, maybe you can even consider uh, making a donation to support this continued uh, series of podcasts. And be sure to uh, join us next time as we continue the conversation on Great Minds with Michael Medved. You can find us at mindswithmedved.com.